Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Alison Blay Palmer to the show. Alison Blay Palmer, the UNESCO Chair on Food Biodiversity and Sustainability Studies, is the founding director for the Center for Sustainable Food Systems and a professor in geography and environmental studies at Wilfrid Laurier University. Her research and teaching combine her passions for sustainable food systems, biodiversity, and community viability through civil society engagement and innovative governance. Alison collaborates with academics and practitioners across Canada and internationally, including partners in Australia, Brazil, France, Germany, Kenya, South Africa, and the United States. Alison, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks, Raj. Thank you so much for having me. Alison, I'm excited to speak with you. Before I dig into the topic of sustainable food systems, I have a question for you. What is a possibilist and how did you become one? A possibilist is a word that I tripped across. Uh, a researcher in Northern Europe used that term, um, Hans Rosling, to describe what he sees as a middle ground between uh, being a positivist and, and someone who looks at things very negatively. And that is being realistic about what can be done and being optimistic about getting there. And I really think that sustainable food systems offer us the opportunity to all be possibilists because they give us uh, ways that we can bring about change in our uh, the world that needs a lot of help right now. I love that definition. Did you know Hans personally? I did not. No, unfortunately, he passed away in the last few years as well. Um, he did some remarkable work with Gapminder and helping people to understand the issues around poverty and how that intersects with people's access to things like food and health care and those kinds of things at a global scale. So, yeah, I wish I had had a chance I to don't meet think, him. I don't think I've seen anyone display data as beautifully as he did and create as such a strong narrative, you know, just, I mean, he was magical at that. Yeah, he really was. Yeah. So you mentioned sustainable food systems. Mm -hmm. Can you describe for us what is a sustainable food system? Well, I think the the way I usually like to address this, this question is to think about, first of all, sustainability. And we usually use a definition that focuses on social issues, that we have equity, um, that we have economic viability, uh, and that Things are focused at the local level as much as possible um, so that we have money that's sort of circulating in local economies. And in terms of the environment, that we're dealing with things in an ecologically regenerative way that helps us to protect and preserve biodiversity. So that's the sustainability dimension. The food dimension is um, that we do all of that in a way that allows people access to healthy food um, that's produced in a way um, that's consistent with their cultural needs and that they can have access to that, reliable access to that. 
And in terms of systems, and I think this is where it gets really super complicated and difficult and challenging for people, is that we do all of this as much as possible at the same time, and that we're looking at this as an integrated, coherent way of addressing the challenges that we face. And that's really the focus of all the work that I do. So it sounds like there are a lot of moving parts to this idea of a sustainable food system. How do you get alignment on all the parts? Well, you get alignment by gradually sort of dancing things and moving things incrementally towards each other. Um, There are lots of great examples um, around the world of different projects uh, that that exist that demonstrate this kind of um, coherence. There is a movement called agroecology, for example, that does take all of these different components into account. Um, it is largely led by uh, smallholder or small scale farmers um, in communities where they're able to protect uh, biodiversity. So they're really stewarding the land. Uh, They provide food to their local communities. So this is not a globalized food system. This is a localized food system. And uh, they're they're providing healthy food to people. And that's really important because right now, if we look at the statistics, there are more than 3 billion people um, on the planet who do not have access to healthy and nutritious food. So they may have access to calories, food that's calorie dense, but not nutrient dense. And um, because of the lack of availability of healthy food, um, we're seeing a crisis of obesity, raising, uh, you know, rising cancer rates and those kinds of things. So there are um, food related diseases that are on the rise. And at the same time, we also have people who can suffer from that kind of um, malnutrition, but also people who don't have access to the calories either. So um, when we look at the world, there's a huge opportunity for improvement. And um, I think the message that's loud and clear from those numbers is that despite the fact that we have enough food to feed everybody a healthy diet or enough uh, food on the planet to feed everyone, uh, people don't have access to that food. And it's really um, an issue of not being able to grow the kind of food that people need to grow. So they're either being forced to grow for the global market Um, or they don't have the income necessary to provide themselves with a healthy diet. And this is not something that's unique to um, people who live in the global south. This is something uh, that exists within uh, the United States and Canada. There are uh, many people who go hungry um, and who are not food secure. And um, this is particularly uh, the case in... um, communities of color and also in indigenous and native communities. Uh, so these are these are issues that we need to think long and hard about um, for everybody in the world. So if we have such a robust agricultural program, United States, Canada, why do you think it is that people still don't have access to calorie-rich food or nutritionally dense food? Yeah, it's the calories um, are part of the problem, but it's also the nutritional food that we need. So food that's grown in a way that is healthy um, and also food that is minimally processed. So while people can get access to ultra processed foods that could be high in starches, uh, sugars, salt, um, and it's very shelf stable. And so it can be shipped all around the world. That's not how you uh, that's not the foundation for a healthy diet, right? Um, so th- the challenge is that we've developed this globalized food system that that privileges those kinds of foods, and as a result of that, ends up privileging profits over 
nutritional um, needs of people. And so we've got a food system that's out of kilter. And it's out of kilter for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons that's driving all of um, the challenges that we're facing ultimately is the existence of the food system now and the way it's conceived of as a profit opportunity. And really, when you think about it, food is like water, it's like air, and it's, it is, uh, according to the United Nations, a basic human right. And so if you think about food in that way and not as a commodity, that's an opportunity for corporations or major retailers to be making money, um, then, then we have we can conceive of our food system in a different way. But at the moment, um, at least in the global north, the food system is dominated by um, major retailers, by people who are promoting um, the growing of food through things like monocultures, so soy and corn monocultures that rely really heavily on fossil fuels. So if we look at, for example, if we think about climate change, just to give you an example of how food can be a lever for changing things in a good or a bad direction, food contributes an estimated up to 37% of greenhouse gases, the globalized food system. Now, if we were able to ratchet that down in many different ways, that would help us address climate change in a really meaningful way. And the things that we would need to do to address the climate change issues also would help um, to provide more nutritious food to people. So there would be less ultra-processed food, for example. There would be less intensive agriculture. There would be less use of fossil fuels. We would rely more on integrated uh, agroecological growing systems. And so there would be benefits across across the table. The challenge, though, is that's not profitable. So there isn't a profit motive for moving in a sustainable food systems direction. And that's really the fundamental challenge to making this happen and why policy becomes so critically important. How do we unwind the current food system? Well, there's lots of people working in the direction of unwinding it um, as we speak and have been for a long time. Fortunately, there are uh, about 70% of the food that's produced in the world is produced by smallholder farmers who, in many cases, use what I've referred to as agroecological or ecological growing systems. And thanks to them, we continue to have um, the amount of uh, biodiversity that we do in the world. But what we need to do is support these people more. We need to support them and empower them to continue doing what they're doing, to make sure that they're not threatened by the global food system, and also to give them enough presence that they can help other farmers uh, who are not growing in this kind of way to produce food differently. There are lots of opportunities that we could access uh, in the global north that would allow us to grow our food differently. And I'm not suggesting that we would have a food system where no one would have access to coffee or tea or chocolate. I, for one, could not live without chocolate, so or coffee, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so I think it's really important to be balanced in our perspectives. But right now, the vast majority of investment in terms of how we're developing new crops uh, is going in the direction of high tech. Uh, the vast majority of subsidies that are provided to agriculture are to support the global food system. And the preponderance is to use uh, chemical and fossil fuel based inputs. And those are all not necessary. There are other ways of doing things. It just means we have to shift gears. And the way to do that is to recalibrate. And this is not a simple thing. I'm not 
pretending that this is an easy thing to accomplish. We've just had um, the World Food Systems Summit, which um, unfortunately did not produce the inclusive and um, rights-based approaches that people were hoping for. So there are constantly attempts to make this restructuring happen, uh, but it's a big machine, um, the global food system, and it's very hard to dismantle. Can you explain what the inclusive and rights-based system you were speaking about? Yeah, sure. Um, Inclusive would be that everybody uh, has access to healthy food, regardless of ethnic background, color, or um, whether people are indigenous or everybody should just have access to healthy food. And that's not the case. The case is the people who have the money have the best food and other people do not. They're, they're malnourished in many ways, as I said before. Three billion people don't have access to healthy food, uh, to a nutritious diet. So, um, and I think one of the things that's really interesting is as we reflect on and hopefully come out of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, is what that really showed us was the value of having localized food systems that are able to reach more people with healthy local food, as opposed to relying on the global uh, food supply chains. Because we saw instances where those supply chains started to break down, and the result was people started to feel the effects of not having the choice that they were used to having from the globalized food system. And that really made them think about how vulnerable where their food comes from is and how vulnerable their food security is. And when we think about it, um, and I'm not suggesting that we go back to the 1950s or 40s or whatever, um, in terms of our, well, obviously not the 40s, we were in a world war for part of that decade. But um, there are points in our history where where communities were more self-sufficient, where they ate more culturally appropriate local food that was grown in a way that was in harmony with the local, um, local ecosystems and local landscapes. And the more we move away from that, the more we're diminishing our food options in the in the long run, right? Because I mean, if you think about the globalized food system, there are fewer and fewer options available in terms of the kinds of races that people grow. Um, there used to be thousands and thousands of races that were adapted to microclimatic and micro landscape conditions. And gradually that diversity is being eroded. And as we erode that kind of agri Um, diversity, what we're doing is we're eliminating our options to deal with things like climate change as well, right? Because we're losing that genetic heritage that has been developed over millennia by Indigenous peoples. So um, it is not to our advantage to go in the direction of less options. It's to our advantage to go in the directions of more options and having a more fluid, dynamic, diverse food system. And if you think about what's happening with the retail space, if you think about what's happening with the landscapes that you drive through um, in Dallas, I don't know if you drive out into the countryside or not, but you would be hard pressed to find farmers fields or uh, more more biodiverse agricultural landscapes. I think what you would find is it, they're predominantly monocropped and the soil may be even left bare Um, for part of the year. So the soil is lost. And um, that's another problem that we're having is uh, the salinization of our soils and the soil losses, soil literally blows away. So if we're doing farming in a different way that respects and 
protects the soil and the water quality and biodiversity, then we're also um, helping to preserve our options for the future. Have you read the book, The Wizard and the Prophet? I have not. It's a story about Norman Borlaug and William uh, Vogt. Okay, yeah. No, I haven't read that book. I'm, f- I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Norman Borlaug, though. Yeah, of course. So after I read that book, I was quite conflicted. You know, he won the Nobel Prize for his research on plants and resistant to certain areas and then around the world. And it came to mind because you mentioned the different kinds of rices that, you know, depending on the culture where you are, different kinds of rice grow there. Mm -hmm. And I came away conflicted because part of me felt like his research enabled us to kind of go down this monoculture path. But the other part of me feels like because of him, populations were able to grow and thrive. So just curious if you'd read the book. I haven't, um, but thank you for bringing it to my attention. But I am very familiar with uh, Borlaug's work and the fact that he won a Nobel Prize. And I think that that celebration of what we would call modernity, right, that technology is needed to, to solve all our problems is a fallacy. I think that the work that Borlaug did was in many ways important, um, but it also took us down a path that has led us to where we are now, unfortunately. And I think that what we need to do is adopt a more balanced perspective. So instead of putting all of our eggs in one basket, so you know, relying so heavily on so few crops, soybeans, corn, rice, and wheat, really, those are the key crops that, that our food system relies on, and so few animal breeds, right? Uh, for people who eat meat. That doesn't make for a very robust, resilient food system in the end. And while it's important that we have wheat and it's important that we have rice, they don't have to be grown in the kinds of conditions that we grow them in now. So um, I think there are lots of lessons to be learned uh, from that work. And we need to actively examine the choices that we've made and not just assume that those are the right decisions for now. I, I totally agree. Now, earlier you mentioned sustainable food system as a as a lever for change. And I had the pleasure of watching one of your other lectures. And you talked about having the right people at the table and also having their voices heard. How do you suggest we facilitate situations where we can get the right people at the table? That's a really good question, Raj. And it's not easy because there's lots of power dynamics and there's lots of vested interests. But one of the great things about food is what it can do and how it can be a positive game changer for people. So uh, for example, if you're working in a city and you want to address issues around land use and you want to address issues around food access, and you want to address issues around water quality, you can bring together a group of planners and policymakers, uh, people who are engaged in food production in the peri-urban and the um, rural areas. You can bring together uh, people who are the end recipients, the consumers of food, the eaters, um, and make sure that you're representing different communities. Um, and bring those people to the table and initiate conversations with them that help them to figure out how in their world those issues can be addressed simultaneously. And there's lots of interesting work that's going on in that regard. Um, I've been involved in a project with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization and uh, RUAF, which is an urban agriculture uh, not-for-profit. 
And we've been doing work over the last few years on trying to figure out how to engage these or how to bring about these multi-stakeholder groups um, so that people can benefit across different uh, scales. And it's hard work and it takes a lot of effort on people's part. But what they find in the end is that what as the work unfolds and as people have these conversations, what ends up happening in many cases is that they find that they're addressing more problems than they anticipated. And it's sort of a, um, a, a positive spiraling of, of benefits to communities. So while it is hard work to make sure that that happens, it does provide some coherence and it helps us to solve more than one problem at the same time, which is really what we need right now as we're trying to think about what do we do with the terrible biodiversity loss that we're experiencing in the world um, and the climate crisis that we're facing and the fact that the pandemic took place and how do we, you know, how do we protect um, and deal with all of these shocks and hazards and protect communities and make them more resilient. And while food isn't the only solution, when you put it together with, um, you know, you think about it in the context of where we get our energy from and how we protect our water systems and how we protect our ecosystems and how we provide um, fair working conditions as well, for example, to people. How do we stem my, the flow of migrants? Um, all of these things have very strong rootedness in food issues and, and lack of food. So by resolving those issues, by bringing many different people to the table at the same time with different perspectives, you can start to make progress. It's really silo busting is is uh, is what happens. And people start to understand that they're working in a system and that if they don't work in the system and make the system work for them, they're just going to solve one problem that's going to create another in all likelihood. You know, I think silo busting is one part of it, absolutely. I think another challenge is, is that quite often when you're speaking to the people that are most affected by these issues, they don't have the time, the resources, the bandwidth to even come to the table. And and what I mean by that is that, you know, quite often other obligations, perhaps work, family, et cetera, precludes them from just showing up to sometimes these meetings that concern them or will affect them down the road. I don't know if you've thought about some kind of incentive program or, and I don't want to say people should be paid to show up, but I, I, I find it challenging sometimes to get those people to the table. Yeah, absolutely, Raj. You're absolutely right. And for example, in some of the research that we do, we do pay people to participate. Um, if a person has to take time away from their family or their job, so if a person works in a government organization, for example, where they're paid to participate in the meeting, we obviously wouldn't compensate them. But if a person is coming to a meeting and it's giving their time to solving these problems, then they need to be compensated. Absolutely. And we do our absolute best to make sure that happens in the work that we do. It's not always possible because re resources are constrained, uh, but we do make, um, and I know lots of organizations do that. I think that's fantastic. I'm I'm quite involved here in my local city and where I live, and you know I've noticed that the same faces keep show up showing up to the same meetings, mm. and it's not because other people don't want to be engaged. It's just that they're constrained and they can't. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I think some someone mentioned to me once maybe it should be sort of like jury duty somehow that people should get a leave from their work, um, paid leave of course, um, to participate in community initiatives and community consultations. And maybe that's one way of handling it. I think one of the things that we saw as well in the pandemic were some pretty creative solutions to, to giving people support in a way that we hadn't really 
uh, understood before. It, it was interesting to me that one of the very first reactions that countries in the developed world had was to make sure that people could keep their, you know, could keep an income of some kind. And I think that recognition is something that could be built on to um, enable people to participate as citizens, to really be active, engaged citizens, because there's so much value in that. I mean, if we develop solutions without the people who are going to be impacted by the solutions sitting at the table, they probably aren't going to be taken up. But if we develop, we know um, through things like participatory budgeting, for example, or participatory certification programs, if you engage people in that decision-making process, then the solutions are taken up because they're relevant. <laughs> and that's really the key, right, is to make sure that you're developing um, solutions that, that have meaning on the ground. Um, otherwise, what's the point? And the people feel like they're involved and have skin in the game, too. Exactly. They're empowered. Yeah, for sure. Now, one of your lectures I was watching, you very eloquently described how a sustainable food system would address many of the UN's SDG goals. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Um, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are very complicated. Um, there's 17 of them in total, and there's 167 targets that go along with the 17 um, goals. So, it's a complex thing to get your head around, first of all. Um, but on the surface, there are many goals um, that are incredibly relevant for uh, food. So for example, the no poverty goal is obviously key. We've talked about you need um, money to buy food, to buy healthy food. So if um, we had no poverty in the world, then obviously that would go a long way to resolving the, um, the second goal, which is zero hunger. So there's also goals around gender and education. There's goals around, um, and clearly, um, women tend to tend to carry the burden in many countries for providing food for their families, um, maybe through growing food or through cooking or um, caring for land or you know, in many, many ways, women, this burden falls on women's shoulders or this opportunity, depending on how you look at it, falls on women's shoulders. So gender equity is very important. Education is very important. Um, there's also goals around um, sustainable consumption, around sustainable urban spaces. There's goals around climate change, um, energy use, and um, and also uh, preserving biodiversity on the land and in the waters. So clearly, all of those are connected to food, right? Um, if we have sustainable waterways and sustainable land resources and landscapes, if we have uh, no poverty <laughs> and we have zero hunger, then uh, we're achieving those goals and food has a lot to do with that. And I think that that's really going back to what we were talking about before is really important to remember the systems approach and how things are all interconnected together, but how when you do one thing, it has either positive or negative spinoff um, to other things. You know, it does cascading effect. And as mm -hmm. I listen to you kind of go through the different SDGs and the relevance to food, Maslow's hierarchy just rings so true in my ears. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, and I, and that is also why I have a lot of problems with food being a commodity and something that people invest in. And there's a futures market. And fundamentally, food is different. Food is not an automobile or a computer or, um, or clothing even. It's something that we need to survive. And by making it into a commodity and something that gets bought and sold, 
we lose the we lose sight of the value uh, in terms of culture, in terms of equity. We don't value the people who produce our food. We don't value our farmers. We don't value the people who go into the fields and pick the fruits and vegetables that get shipped all around the world for us. Um, we don't pay those people a decent wage, a living wage in many cases. They're not treated very well in many cases. So I, I think it's really important to, um, as you were saying, using the word cascading, to really appreciate what that cascading involves and how things are so interconnected. Absolutely. So my favorite part of the conversation, the why behind what you do, what moved you, what drove you to become so interested in food? Where did that come from? Well, it came initially from looking at what's going on in the world and understanding that food could be part of the solution. So I've been very concerned about climate change for decades. Um, I have children. Um, they are now, um, I'm blessed to have grandchildren now as well. And I think when you're in that situation and you look around and you see how inequitable things are and how the world is becoming very uh, polarized in terms of people who have so much money and other people who have really not enough resources at all. Billions of people don't have enough resources. And what's going on in the climate and and all of these issues, they really motivated me to look for a way to, to you know, help make small changes in the world. So that was one thing. The other thing is I have a background um, through my family in farming and growing food. And I have firsthand experience of uh, growing on an industrial scale farm. And I know what that's like. And I know what farmers have to deal with having done that. And um, I have a lot of empathy for farmers. It's very difficult. They've been put in a really tough place in Canada and the United States in terms of what their options are. But I also know that there's lots of alternatives out there now. And there's lots of ways that they could be the kinds of stewards of their land that they, I'm sure, would want to be in most cases. You know, the, the, the agricultural system is so vertically integrated now. Farmers are at the bottom of a very um, precarious triangle and all of the risk falls on their shoulders and very little of the profit does. And I think that we need to tip that in a different direction. And it's not just for North American farmers or farmers um, in the EU, but it's for farmers around the world. And I think if people could understand that and appreciate that there's the basis for solidarity around those kinds of issues, then maybe we would think differently about the kind of food that we eat. And I wish people had the space to be able to do that. I think that's really important. And it's it's terrible that we don't. So coming from a farming background, obviously you had an interest in food and growing food. But what pushed you specifically towards sustainable food systems? The idea of trying to find a solution to some of the challenges that we're facing. Um, sustainable food systems, to me, answer have the potential to answer and address many of the, the challenges that we face. So for example, if we had a national school feeding program in Canada, uh, that could be developed in a way that would allow, um, we don't have a national school feeding program. You do in the United States, there's a lot of challenges with it, but it at least kids go to school and get a meal when they're in school. So COVID notwithstanding, but uh, we do not have that in Canada. And there's an opportunity there to connect and create viable markets for small family farmers that would help feed into that 
that that demand stream so that new newly created supply chain and that newly created supply chain could look quite different to the kinds of supply chains that we have right now they could be values based as opposed to value based so i think my interest is in trying to find solutions and trying to figure out how we can and i mean it's very pollyanna-esque i, I and i apologize for that but in a way but in another way i don't <laughs> I think we need we need to think about these things and we need to look for solutions. And if we all can hold hands and do that together, then we're going to go in a positive direction as opposed to not reflecting on it and not being able to act on it and going in a very bad direction right now. You know, you mentioned Pollyanna based, but I feel like it's people like you in the world who have this possibilist mentality and perhaps Pollyannish thinking that are going to be making the changes going forward. So no, I appreciate that. Well, it's uh, so, lots of people doing the same work and it's, uh, it's a, there's growing momentum. So that's what's important. That is important. So you've been on this journey for quite a while now. What's the most valuable lesson you've learned about yourself? The most valuable lesson that I've learned about myself, I guess, is to be a possibilist, really. What you started off with, Raj, is just because if you're, if you're, all you're looking at is the positive side of things, it's very discouraging. But if we look at what we can do and do those things incrementally, and I'm blessed to work with wonderful people um, at the Laurier Center for Sustainable Food Systems and my colleagues that I work with around the world through various projects. And those people are identifying where the possibilities are. And uh, we're together growing those pot, literally. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to use a really corny pun there. But um, yeah, so I, I think that that's, that's the thing that, that, I've, that I've learned about myself is um, that the idea that possibilism is really my way forward. I love the idea of possibilism. Now, let's move into the future it's 2030. You have a magic wand. Hmm. What does a sustainable food system look like to you? Well, uh, first of all, we have increasing biodiversity on farms. Our soil quality is also improving. Uh, the land around farms, the um, sorry, the water around farms is clean. Uh, there's fish in the streams and there are many farms on the landscape, all producing different kinds of crops and animals, and that those farms are connected into local processing facilities, local distribution facilities, there might be some, um, I'm sure there would be some kind of online connectivity between people eating the food and people growing the food. Uh, there would be lots of good quality jobs in food processing, local food processing. There would be access to local food through things like farmers markets. There would be community kitchens where people could come together and prepare food themselves in a community kind of way. There would be community gardens where people could be in touch with the soil themselves. There would be accessible transportation so that people could get to the community gardens. There would be green spaces throughout cities that were also in many cases farms. And then everybody living in every place had access to good quality, sustainably produced, healthy food, and that they had the income to be able to afford that. But that's nine years away, Raj, so I'm not confident that's gonna happen, but <laughs> that's the that's but, the dream with the sustainable development goals, right? So um, we have a lot of work to do. The vision is beautiful. Do you have it mapped out? 
Uh, I guess I have it mapped out in my head. I don't know if I've ever been as explicit about it as I just was, but uh, I guess that's something I need to do when I get off this call. <laughs> well, I'd love to see the finished product when you're done. Thanks. I'll share it with you so, when I have it ready. Thank you. So last question and something I'm going to take away from what you said earlier. I just love the way you said it. Values-based versus value-based. I think that there's such a distinction there. I just think it's so eloquent. I'm going to come away with this from, from our conversation. But if you could share some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, and it could be personal or professional, what would it be? That we need to see our food differently. Um, that we need to appreciate food as a source of community, as a source of culture, as a source of personal well-being, and as a source of wonder and diversity in the world that we live in. And if we were able to see food that way, instead of something that we just grabbed and tried to um, do really quickly and food as fuel, as opposed to food as nourishing in all the senses of the word, I think that's a really important takeaway. And I know how busy people are, and I know that that's a big ask, but I think the more we can do that, the better off everybody will be in the end. And also, get your hands in the soil, grow something. It's a wonderful thing to do. Allison, I love the idea of seeing our food differently. I look forward to your vision 2030 coming to fruition and to catching up with you again soon. Thanks for the time, Raj. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.